Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And this week on Talking Biotech, it's exciting to talk about trees and tree forestry and the potential improvements in tree forestry are one major part of biotechnology and a place that most people forget about. Yet at the same time there's all kinds of innovations that tree biology can really benefit from. One of the main reasons is because of the tremendously long generation time that it takes to grow a tree. That as someone who wants to be a breeder in something like maybe tomatoes or strawberries, you're able to generate new generations every year. But someone working in tree improvement might spend a lifetime making just a generation or two. And so tree improvement can always be slow. And sometimes our greatest challenges in the forest may be better approached using a biotechnology approach or a transgenic approach. And with us today is an excellent example of that. Okay, and with us today is Dr. Bill Powell. And uh, Dr. Powell is at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. He's a professor and director for the Council on Biotechnology and Forestry, and along with Dr. Charles Maynard, he serves as the co-director for the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project, and uh, very excited to have him with us here today. How you doing? Yeah, doing all right, and thank you so much for being here with us. The problem you've taken on is uh, is a is an important one because uh, the landscape of say the Appalachian Mountains or the treescape say maybe 150 years ago is very different than it was now so what is the problem that you've taken on uh, in addressing using a biotechnology approach well you're absolutely correct the uh, Appalachians have changed quite a bit um, like say about 150 years ago the American chestnut was one of the most common trees in the eastern forests, uh, representing about 25 percent on average the uh, standing timber um, you could walk through the forest and, and literally one out of every four trees would be a very large American chestnut tree. These were some of the largest trees in the forest. They typically would be three to six feet in diameter. The mature trees were some of the record trees going up to 10 feet in diameter, uh, reaching 80 feet in height. And some of the record ones going over 100 feet in height. Um, a very important keystone species to the wildlife. Uh, produced a, a very consistent nut crop every year. Uh, so that uh, bears and deer and 
and raccoons and all kinds of wildlife, uh, all kinds of birds like uh, jays and, and even uh, some extinct species like the Carolina parakeet would fatten up for the winter on American chestnuts. Now, since we've lost the chestnut, um, the, uh, the uh, oak trees that have replaced them do not produce a, a consistent mass crop every year as the chestnut did. And that's because the uh, chestnuts flower much later and uh, therefore avoid frost, and therefore you get a consistent crop every year. Uh, in fact, this is a time of year when chestnuts are in full flower, and people used to say when they walked into the forest this time of year, it would be almost like uh, snow in the summer because of all the catkins that would be in bloom. Uh, it would give you this kind of uh, this whitish tinge on the top of the forest. So where did they all go? I mean, it seemed like they were the dominant species. I've even heard that a squirrel that it really had a, had some adventure in his blood could travel from Georgia to Maine across 100% chestnuts. Uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, the legend, you know, because they were so abundant um, that, yes, they could just jump from tree to tree and never touch the ground and, and never leave a chestnut tree, uh, supposedly. Um, so what happened was that... Uh, a little over uh, 120 years ago, uh, people started uh, importing Asian chestnut species. Um, these chestnut species people liked because they were smaller. You could grow them in your yard or in an orchard, and it had a nice nut crop uh, that they could harvest. But at that time, they didn't realize that when they bring over these trees from another country halfway around the world, they're also bringing over a bunch of microorganisms. Uh, so all these microorganisms hitchhiked with these trees over here, and one of them, uh, a fungus called Cryphonectria parasitica, this particular fungus um, causes chestnut blight. And it wasn't a major problem on the Asian chestnut trees because they kind of co-evolved together. Um, so it only formed what's called superficial cankers on the trees, and the trees just did fine. Uh, but when they came and brought that species over here, the American chestnut was close enough in relation to those species that that pathogen made an easy jump onto American chestnuts and basically the American chestnuts never seen or been exposed to those uh, that pathogen before were very very susceptible so the introduction um, occurred they believe actually on Long Island New York uh, and then was first described in 1904 at the uh, Bronx Zoological Park and from there in about 50 years or so the uh, chestnut blight spread through the entire range of the American chestnut, killing somewhere between three to five billion large American chestnut trees. Um, the tree isn't extinct yet. The reason why it's surviving now is because uh, the roots are, are protected by the soil microorganisms, and the tree has the ability to sprout at the root collar and grow for a while. Those new shoots will get infected again, it killed back down to the ground, so it's kind of caught in this uh, Sisyphus-like cycle, and that's basically how chestnuts are surviving today. So your solution is a little bit different. Your solution to the problem really transforms that uh, that that cycle of a wild tree that can't really grab hold with an aerial portion by uh, a transgenic approach, by, by adding a gene from another species to the tree to help it survive the fungal insult. And so can you tell us a little bit about the details of that, where the gene comes from, and what the mechanism is that confers resistance? Um, as you said, we're using a, a uh, genetic engineering approach. Uh, big question we had at the beginning of this is, what gene do you choose? I mean, what gene will confer blight resistance? And we're looked at, we are looking at actually lots of different genes, but the one that's really working for us 
is one that um, the idea actually comes back from when I was a graduate student uh, way back in the 1980s. Um, at that time, I was working on uh, hypovirulence, which is a um, phenomenon where a virus attacks the fungus. And other researchers at that time discovered that the hypovirulent isolates of the fungus, the ones who were infected, did not produce as much ox oxalate or oxalic acid. This particular compound, this toxin, is needed to be produced by the fungus in order to kill the tissues in the host tree, the American chestnut. Some researchers, uh, Chen Chen and Dr. Donald Nuss's lab, actually did some mutational studies on the fungus and found out if you knock out the enzyme that's used to make this uh, oxalic acid, then the fungus also becomes avirulent, meaning that it can no longer form a canker. So the key thing here was this production of oxalic acid or oxalate. So when we start looking at genes, we want to look at the other genes that can actually detoxify the oxalic acid. Um, one of the most studied ones comes from wheat, and it's called an oxalate oxidase. This particular detoxifying enzyme will take the acid and break it down into uh, non-toxic compounds, hydrogen peroxide and carbon dioxide. The plant actually uses both of those compounds, uses, of course, carbon dioxide to make sugars, can make, use the hydrogen peroxide to form lignin and, and shore up the cell walls. So this enzyme here is, is great because it doesn't actually kill the fungus. It's not a pesticide. What it actually does is to disarm the fungus. It gets rid of the ox, oxalate or oxalic acid the fungus produces, and therefore the fungus can no longer kill the tree. So the tree basically then can live side by side with the fungus uh, the fungus can, can colonize wounds, can live on the bark, just as it does actually on oak trees right now. So this is, this is our favorite gene right now because of the way it, it works, and it seems to be very, very effective. It also seems very highly unlikely to be able to develop a resistance strategy around that solution. Like the fungus can't, unless it produces, say, uh, tons more oxalate, uh, it seems that uh, unlikely that you would have a resistance issue. Right, and, and there's actually will be no selective pressure for the fungus to actually do that because it's still surviving on the tree. So it's going to be producing, producing um, sexual spores and crossing with other uh, of its uh, species. Um, and also the fungus actually survives on oak trees too, which are very common. And none of those are going to be selected for higher production of uh, oxalate. Uh, so, so you have this kind of refugia that's going to keep, you know, any mutations that might help overcome this resistance uh, from building up in the population. That's really cool. And so what kind of evaluations have you done so far, and how, like, so how well does it work? And uh, do you have trees that are strictly greenhouse at this point, or are you actually planting them outside? Where are you in the process? Okay, so we've actually been planting our transgenic trees, of course, under permits, under USDA permits, in the field since 2006. Um, the first version that we had just made a very little bit of this enzyme, and we basically called it the version that died slower. And uh, then the next version uh, was our proof of concept uh, version. It's one called the Darling 4, and that one has intermediate levels of resistance. 
significantly higher than the wild type American chestnut trees, but not quite as high as our standard of, of Asian Chinese chestnut. And then our newest ones uh, actually have levels of resistance that appear to be equal to the Chinese chestnut and possibly even higher. We do uh, leaf uh, assays, which is a quick test, to, and then we also do stem assays, which take longer but um, are more w- what it actually looks like in the field. Um, so we have this uh, gene that seems to be working very, very well, and um, we are now doing other types of tests because since we are making a tree that's resistant to a fungus, we want to make sure it does not hurt beneficial fungi, which we don't expect it would because of those mechanisms, but we're testing that anyway. So we have done studies with um, mycorrhizae colonization. Mycorrhizae are those uh, good fungi that colonize roots and help uh, bring in nutrients into a tree. Uh, and what we found is there's absolutely no difference between our transgenic trees producing this oxide oxidase and wild-type trees. Uh, we have some colleagues of ours actually doing insect feeding studies, uh, not seeing any difference with uh, insects that feed on the trees. We have other colli- colleagues doing uh, leaf litter decomposition, again, not finding any significant difference in, in how these leaves uh, will, you know, the rate of decomposition in, in the field. So we're doing a lot of environmental tests uh, to ensure that our trees are basically the same as the wild-type trees, and that's what we want. We're not making a super tree or anything like that. All we want to do is get the tree back to where it was before the blight. And I guess I'll, I'll ask a question here that I know the answer to, but I, I want you to please entertain this anyway, just so, because it always comes up, is, and it really, there's two questions here. One is, why don't you just breed in the resistance from the Chinese chestnut? And two would be, what kind of regulatory oversight would be required for you to test that tree? As far as breeding in resistance, there's actually um, a program with the American Chestnut Foundation uh, where they are doing uh, breeding, where they're taking uh, Chinese chestnut and American chestnut, making a hybrid, and then going through a series of back crosses to um, basically bring the, uh, the resistance from the Chinese chestnut along while you're weeding out any of the traits of the Chinese chestnut you don't want. Um, that, that program is actually doing pretty well. Um, but it, the, the difficulties with that program is that you have to do two things at the same time. You have to bring along the resistance at the same time, get rid of traits that you don't want. And so it, it involves a lot of trees, a lot of crossing, a lot of testing. With the transgenics program, basically we're starting with the, with the tree we want, a wild-type American chestnut tree fully adapted to our environment. Uh, so we're making a very small change, so we're just adding in the resistance and not adding in a bunch of other stuff that we didn't have to weed out. And, and that's really the power of, of genetic engineering, is that um, it's a much cleaner process and uh, a much quicker process once you develop the techniques. We took 16 years to develop the techniques. But uh, once you have it, then, then you can do it fairly quickly. The other question you had is about the regulatory process. That's an advantage that the breeding program has. They do not have to go through any regulatory process uh, once they have trees they want to pass out, or any trees along the, the way, they can pass them out to the public. Uh, we can only grow our trees on federally approved uh, sites uh, where we get inspections and have to write reports and have to make sure the uh, trees do not go off-site or their pollen or the nuts or anything like that. So 
we have to go through a process where we're going to have to prove to the uh, USDA, the EPA, and the FDA and get their approval before we can uh, pass these out to the general public. So we're kind of estimating five years. We are not making a crop. What we are actually doing is making a tree that's going to go back into the wild to benefit the environment. Um, and the way the regulatory system set up, is set up now is that the EPA basically gives you a license. That's okay if you're a company that, you're, that sells seed because um, you can just renew those licenses and keep selling your seed and all. But for a restoration tree that's going to be out in the field for a couple hundred years or more, uh, how do you, who's going to hold that license? You know, it's, it's just kind of a, a unusual situation. So we're going to have to work around that aspect and, and probably have to get some kind of exemption or something because uh, if, if people want to use genetic engineering to help uh, restore trees, and there's actually a lot of problems in our forest right now that this can, can tackle, then we need to have something change that would allow us to actually produce a tree, um, get it fully evaluated, and once it's approved, can be put out and, and just used like any other tree. And that was, it's actually what makes this particular topic so attractive and why I was excited to talk to you about it was because what we're looking at here is really changing, taking an example where humans, humans took this Chinese chestnut, brought it here, created an issue that damaged the ecology, and now we're using a, a, a genetic engineering solution to restore the ecology to what it was. And I can't think of, I can't think of reasons why folks would be rallying against this, and it seems to me to be such a logical and um, and I don't want to say humanitarian, but plantitarian or ec- ecologicalitarian uh, use of the technology. And so, where are you now in terms of the deregulation process? We are starting to put together the petition for deregulation, so we haven't actually submitted it yet. Find out, you know, what tests still need to be done. You know, what's missing. And then we'll eventually um, submit it. We are in contact with the uh, different regulators at the USDA, EPA, and FDA. We hope uh, that we're going to put this in before the end of this year, but um, we have to wait and see. Uh, Make sure that we have all the data together because we don't want to put something in and have it fail. And and what has the pushback been from the anti-GMO tree folks? And I know there's quite a few of them out there that have been vehemently against the production of uh, transgenic, say, eucalyptus or other trees, how have they uh, interacted with you or what have they? What have you read about their, their interest in the Chestnut Project? It's kind of interesting. Uh, two years ago, I attended a forest biotechnology conference in Florida. And in my session, I was the first speaker, and I gave my presentation about the transgenic American chestnut trees, and it all went fine. And then as soon as the next speaker came up, uh, there were some protesters embedded in the audience. And those protesters got up and then disrupted the next uh, speaker who was, who was talking on eucalyptus. And basically for about 35 minutes or so, the, the conference had, had stopped because of these protesters. But it was interesting because one of the protesters um, basically said out loud, said, I'm not talking about the Chestnut Project. I'm talking about this project. And so, so it almost seems like they, they gave me a buy. <laughs> well, it seems to be one of the 
ideas like chestnut and I look at citrus and citrus screening and some of the cases where the technology is moving a plant gene to a plant to solve a problem which which we all can kind of agree on and it's not Monsanto or in this case even Arborgen or one of the big companies or one of the companies I should say big companies uh, one of the companies this is a an effort by public scientists who are paid with public funds to solve problems for the public and I think that the uh, anti-GM crowd and, and the folks there are starting to see that there are some very legitimate uses of this technology to solve problems that we all care about and that's been kind of the theme of this podcast was how do we how do we roll out and expose those examples because those are really kind of the first domino that once we can start to demonstrate that this isn't you know Satan science that this is actually a pretty useful tool I think it changes the whole tenor of the discussion so recently you've started a campaign to crowdfund the research or the release and, and what exactly was that campaign and how did that turn out for you you know a lot of the anti-gmo people uh don't like the idea that you know people are making a profit off these things and we made a decision way back in the 1990s uh not to go for any patents on our trees uh, we thought that they would probably just hinder a restoration project um, so we are not patenting these trees. So, so that kind of actually limits um, ways we can get funding actually to do the research. We're at a stage now where we're beyond just the pure research. So it's getting harder for us to raise funds through the typical granting agencies. Um, we tried something new. is a crowdfunding campaign to start raising money to produce uh, 10,000 light-resistant American chestnut trees during the time that we go through the regulatory process so that once we finally get approval, which I hope we will, um, we will have an, a large number of trees that we can start distributing and use for restoration. So we did this crowdfunding campaign. Uh, we, we put a modest amount of 50000 originally uh, as our goal. Uh, we, we blew that out of the water. We, we raised over $100,000. Uh, we had um, uh, way over 500 individual donors. The typical donation was about $100 a person. We had donations from 48 of the 50 states of the United States. Uh, we had donations from, I think, uh, six different countries outside the U.S. Um, and had a lot of good comments. During this time, there was a, a lot of discussions on Reddit and other places. And they were running about 20 to 1 positive for the, for the Chestnut Project. Uh, we're estimating it's going to take us at least $3 million to go through this whole process. And I know a lot of folks that work in forest biology and forest genomics, and it really makes me think about your trees and the genetic background. What, which genetic background of the, uh, of the che American chestnut did you use? And is that something that could potentially grow um, in a durable way in, say, your area? But how would that perform in a place like Georgia? Okay, so our, we, we start with a genetic background from New York because that's where we're going to test our trees and everything. But we have a plan um, that we don't, as you will realize, that when you produce a tree um, through genetic engineering, you start off with basically a clone. You have no genetic diversity. So we have a plan to bring back the genetic diversity. And that's why I mentioned before, there's still a few million American chestnut trees surviving out in the wild. And the idea here is to take our blight-resistant trees and to outcross them to what we call mother trees in the local areas. 
Uh, and that way you can actually rescue the genetic diversity that's surviving out there. Um, so when you cross one of our trees with a wild type tree, the offspring, half the offspring will have blight resistance. Those half that are resistant will also have half the complement of the alleles from the father and half the complement from the mother. So you've rescued just in that one tree half that genetic diversity of that surviving tree. If you cross it several times, you actually get a bigger portion of the alleles that are in that uh, surviving tree. And so you kind of almost re recapture or rescue the, the diversity there uh, um, and, and then put those back into a restoration program. And then, then you would take those and you would put the trees uh, that you, the mother, you know, you, the ones you outcrossed uh, to in the same kind of environment so that they'd be adapted to that environment. So your question about what about trees in Georgia? We would cross our trees with trees in Georgia, um, take those offspring, cross, outcross them again to other trees in Georgia, and basically build up genetic diversity and local adaptation uh, through that pro program. So genetic engineering isn't something that's totally divorced of breeding. You still need breeding, and the two go hand in hand, and uh, that's what we'll be doing. That's really great. That's a. I was trying to trying to rationalize this in my head before about how would you repatriate an entire area as diverse as the Appalachians with a common with one genotype, and I, I totally even failed to uh, consult the breeder within me who is really small and kind of useless. Uh, I, I not you know it's, it's not my training at all. That's why I didn't go there. But I see how this could really work that way because you really would just be. Uh, introducing, you know, certainly you'd be using the native alleles and the regional alleles, uh, allelic diversity to uh, potentially select for traits that were regionally adapted, and then just essentially providing this other little uh, boost of the uh, transgene, and and could be uh, could be in the, the well, it could be a very useful uh, strategy. So, yeah, that's what we think. We think that this actually is. Um, a better way of recapturing or to rescue the, the genetic diversity that's out there right now because um, the breeding program, which is actually a very good program, but they have a closed population. Uh, when they outcross from that population, then they lose their resistance and they have to gain it back through um, more, more breeding. With us, every time we outcross, half the offspring are going to be resistant. And then those offspring that are resistant, when they outcross, half their offspring will be resistant. So we don't have to go back and regain the resistance at any point. We can keep outcrossing and outcrossing, incre increasing the genetic diversity and, and rescuing as much that's, that's surviving out there as possible. And just to kind of retreat a little bit um, going backwards, I know that lots of, again, lots of people in forest biology, and there always seems to be a very uh, conservative uh, rollout of these technologies and maybe where you look at other crop plants and it's been a lot more corporate driven and kind of in your face here's what we have here's our next one we're, we're deregulating the people in the forest industries have been a little more connected with some of the NGOs which have been traditionally opposed to the releases like Nature Conservancy and others and I don't remember the name of the organization, but there's been kind of an advisory initiative that has been there that has said we're going to roll this stuff out slowly. And I don't. And just the buzz on the street has been they've been a little bit critical of the chestnut efforts because they say it's uh, maybe moving a little too fast and not um, segueing into uh, in, into the public domain as as much as they as some would like to see it go. And 
How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, people have different opinions on how, how fast it's going. Um, I, I get it from both sides. I'm in the middle here. Um, on the one side, you have people saying that, you know, yes, you know, let's do this slow, slow, slow. And then on the other side, I have people from the American Chestnut Foundation, my New York chapter, saying, why can't we have these trees yesterday? Um, they see no reason why we, they can't plant the trees. Uh, so you got this pressure on one side to go faster, pressure on the other side to go slower. And so I'm kind of in the middle. I'll go at a uh, reasonable pace. Um, but, you know, so and, – and the other thing is, you know – see, I'm not sure how to segue to this, but the, the gene that we're putting into American chestnut is actually a gene that's commonly used by plants for defense. It's uh, found in almost all uh, grasses, all um, pr- uh, cereal crops, and it's found in a lot of uh, dicots too. Uh, it's found in bananas, found in strawberries, so you eat it all the time. Um, it is actually found in chestnut, but not quite as evolved as, as in these other species. Um, there's a precursor to the oxalate-oxidase gene in chestnut that, you know, if you compare, we found actually an oxalate-oxidase from peanut that's 79% identical or has an identity to um, the one in Chinese chestnut. So, but the one in Chinese chestnut does not have this particular enzymatic activity. So it just needs to be evolved a little bit to make it um, into an oxalate oxidase. So, so we're not putting in anything that's really strange or unusual to the tree. Um, so I think I'm going off on a rabbit trail here. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. I, I, I think it's a valid tangent because it really does remind us that all we're doing is moving around. Uh, essentially, it, it's, you're, you're not... You're not adding a um, a set of handlebars to your car. You're changing an oil filter from one brand to another, and right. it's it's a it's a much softer kind of change that's occurring here. You're not doing something that's completely radical that would re-engineer and re uh, would affect the way that this plant interacts with plants or or other plants, people, or the environment. Yeah, and so along those same lines, then, so we're making that really minor minor change. But you got to compare to you have to think about what is being planted out now. So these 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 nature conservancy uh, people and and other environmental groups they have to think about what are people planting out. The most widely planted chestnut tree right now is the Dunstan chestnut. The Dunstan chestnut is a hybrid that was crossed between American chestnut, three variety three different varieties of Chinese chestnut, and then intercrossed all in, in mixing them all together. So you have a tree there that's at best half American, and people are planting this all over the place. So that's one choice. Um, there's a, a company called uh, Baggerset that are crossing Chinese chestnuts with Japanese chestnuts, European chestnuts, American chestnuts, and even some chinkapins, and crossing them all together and coming out with they even emit was like a new species of tree and having those planted out. So, so here's the thing that they have to think about. What would they rather use in a restoration program? Something that's quite a bit different than American chestnut or one that's very true to type is to the American chestnut? And the transgenic trees are going to be the ones that will be most true to type, ones that most likely will actually um, survive in the environment and, and bring all the benefits back that the American chestnut provided 100 years ago. And I guess uh, another thing that really strikes me and I, when I've seen you speak on this topic is that it 
that you know, first you say there's no patents that are being used here. There's not a big profit motive at all. And then one of the other things I always see you talk about is that, and, and maybe I'd like you to speak on it here, is that this isn't necessarily something for you or that you will anticipate seeing as widely adopted in your lifetime, that this is really for future generations. And I think these are really attractive aspects of this particular application. Yeah, there's the old Chinese proverb that, um, you know, we plant the tree and the next generation enjoys the shade. Um, basically, we are doing this as a legacy um, for our next generation. Um, what I tell people in my talks is that, you know, our grandparents had the ability to walk through a chestnut forest and enjoy all the benefits of the American chestnut. We, our generation, have not, and that's because of the chestnut blight. What I hope to do is that our grand, for our grandchildren, that they can enjoy the chestnut forest that our grandparents enjoyed. So, you know, the chestnut tree is going to kind of skip a generation of people, but uh, I hope that it will be back and, and be back where everybody can enjoy it again. So I think that answers all of my questions. Um, thank you very much for visiting with us, Dr. Powell. Thank you. And uh, that's Dr. Bill Powell, who's a professor at the at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. And we'll be back in just a couple minutes with more Talking Biotech. Hi, Talking Biotechers. This is Vern Blazek of the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour. Now, while my podcast is on hiatus, I'm busy like a bee promoting Talking Biotech podcasts. Now, what can you do to help me spread the message? Well, this mothership isn't monetized. It's paid 100% by Fulta out of its grocery budget. No external funds will be accepted. So you can help by spreading the word. Tell a friend. Hell, tell someone you don't like. Stretch Talking Biotech podcast into the bathroom stall at Tripoli. Maybe even hang a note on the Whole Foods Shamans and Healers bulletin board. Most of all, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word on Twitter or use social media to talk about something really cool you heard here on the podcast. The bottom line is, this is about science and how science has helped people improve plants, medicine, and animals. It stands to further improve varieties with the precise tools of biotechnology. And now we switch to the part of Talking Biotech where we consider the history of a very familiar fruit or vegetable, or sometimes animal, I suppose, and uh, or tree, and uh, talk to an expert about where it came from, uh, where it is now, and where it's going, and what is the genetic improvement history, and where is the genetic improvement going? And it really is a pleasure today to welcome Dr. Richard Mitchellmore, a professor at UC Davis, and he's the director of the Genome Center at UC Davis. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Mitchellmore. Pleased to be talking to you. So today we'll talk about the topic of lettuce. And lettuce is something that when I think about it, I think about it maybe like I think about dogs and that I can point to a wild species that may have been something uh, similar to one of the antecedents of the current selections. But there's so many different varieties and so many different types that have come about as a product of human selection. And so as somebody who has thinks about lettuce, what are the major types and what, what, what is lettuce? Uh, lettuce is actually a member of the compositive family, 
which is the most successful family on the planet, plant family on the planet. It includes uh, sunflower, safflower, chicory, artichoke, uh, a lot of uh, the ornamentals, the big showy flowers. So lettuce belongs to that family. And actually, weedy lettuce is really important. It's a very prevalent, successful weed and doesn't look like anything like cultivated lettuce. So as you point out, there's a, there's a whole series of major types. The one that many people are familiar with is the big iceberg crisp head uh, type that looks almost like a cabbage. But then you get the romaine or cost lettuce, the more upright green lettuce. You have the butterhead lettuce, the leafy types. There's something called Batavia, which is sort of halfway between a, a crisp head and a leafy type. And uh, if you go abroad, actually the biggest, the country where you get the most lettuce from, or most lettuce is grown, is in China. And there they tend to eat cooked lettuce, and one form of it is a stem lettuce. So it has a big, big fat stem, and they boil it up, and they, they shred it and, and serve it. It's quite a, quite a tasty vegetable. Yeah, and finally, there's actually a small uh, component of oilseed lettuce where the, the seeds are harvested, and the seeds are about twice the size of normal lettuce seed, and they take the oil out of that. So in terms of the things that we see commonly in the grocery store, say in North America, we're talking about this crisp head type, this um, butter head type, and this uh, what's romaine, the romaine, romaine type. the leafy. And actually, this, there's another type that's really hit the, hit the supermarkets in the last couple of years, and that's the baby leaf, which is what you see in salad mixes. Yes, and the so, baby leaves, they have lots of uh lots of uh interesting colors and are are they really shapes. Yeah, yeah, are they just the small versions of the uh other ones? Um the the small versions particularly of the leafy types. Okay, so if we look back on lettuce's history evolutionarily, where was the center of origin? Where did this stuff come from in time? Well, we don't exactly know where the center of origin. You can look to where the center of diversity is. And that's in the eastern Mediterranean and the Caucasus. So presumably domestication occurred somewhere on the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Um, there's good uh, records of it being present in Egypt. So if you look on the, some of the pharaoh's tombs, you can see uh, lettuce there. It looks like the cos lettuce of today. Okay, so they had maybe a salad bar in the pyramids, or that was a... Sure. Well, actually, no, they have more than that. Uh, lettuce was considered a sacred plant uh, by the god Min, and it was part of his festivals. It, he's the, he was the uh, reproductive ferti fertility god, and the lettuce was thought to help the god perform uh, the sexual act untiringly. So uh, it was quite popular there. Yeah, the original Viagra culture, I guess. There you go. Yeah. So, what what are what, if do wild lettuces still exist today, and what, what do they look like compared to our cultivated ones? Very much so. Actually, lettuce is uh, wild lettuce is one of the more successful weeds, and it doesn't look like anything like lettuce. So, if you're in California right now and you were to look outside, one of the few things that's green in the in the heat is wild lettuce. It uh, It'll, it'll be standing about three, four feet high, green, uh, and flowering and seeding. It's a very, very successful weed. And when you look at the big differences between the wild antecedents and the modern cultivated types, what were some of the major traits that were selected? Okay, so you can think of, of well, one of the very common traits in, in any domestication is the lack of seed chattering. 
you know, wild plants have to disperse their seeds, so they have a mechanism for seed dispersal. If you want to cultivate, one of the first things that has to happen is that the seed stays with the plant. So that um, wild lettuce has a seed head that looks rather like dandelion. The, 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 the complex head becomes inverted, and you get this very pretty sphere of seeds with the, 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 the umbrellas, the parachutes, that will help wind dispersal. That had to go in domestication. So now that, that umbrella structure doesn't invert and it stays tight. So that's called non-shattering. Uh, wild lettuce has quite a lot of spines, so you don't, you don't want to eat a mouthful of spines. That had to go. Uh, particularly, you want a prolonged rosette or vegetative stage. So the wild lettuce will really not really undergo a, a long leafy stage it bolts and flowers fairly rapidly. Of course, what we emphasize in lettuce, for the most part, is this rosette vegetative stage. Uh, another thing is lack of bitterness. Wild lettuce has a lot more latex, which is quite bitter. Uh, so you get decreased latex. Uh, you know, the, the name lactuca, for what, for, uh, which then became uh, derivatized into lettuce, means milky. So that when you cut the stem of lettuce, you get this white, Latex looks like milk, doesn't taste like milk, but that that had to go or at get, least get decreased during domestication. And then you get slower bolting, you get the heading trait, which obviously since domestication, the leafy types don't really head, but you get it accentuated in the, in the crisp head and the iceberg types. And then for commercial, uh, you need storability that uh, you don't want it to become rotten too fast. And this is particularly important with the baby leaf and the salad mixes. And then you have color, appearance, leaf shape, uh, things like that. And how much, um, so in going forward in terms of lettuce domestication and modern day traits, what are some of the biggest challenges that lettuce breeders are trying to correct? Well, one of the things you really would like is uniformity uh, of growth and maturity. So that over the years, uh, it used to be back in the 60s and 70s, they would go in and make two or three harvests. You know, to get it. Now they want to go in once. Uniform harvesting is important. You want to be able, as I say, to get good, good um, shipping and post-harvest. Uh, there are various physiological disorders, that leaf browning, stem browning, um, pinking. So we need to uh, improve the post-harvest quality of lettuce longer shelf life. And then there's the, the nutritional value. Uh, lettuce is, you know, it's not as an, an intense uh, vitamin fix as some other vegetables, but considering the amount of lettuce that's eaten by the American population is actually a major input of, of vegetables and vitamins. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a good source of, uh, of several, um, several types of vitamins and certainly we would like to increase that. So I say it's a major component of the American diet. Uh, yeah, so what did I say? So it's vitamin uh, K and vitamin A, and in the iron type, uh, the romaine types, uh, it's not bad for folate and iron. So we'd like to increase that, but that's a trait that's very environmentally influenced. And I think that's a, it's an interesting thing when we talk about nutrients in, in fruits and vegetables, that 
it's one thing to be able to increase the nutrient value, say, per gram. But what about issues like taste, where you could get somebody to eat maybe three or four grams where they would have just eaten one? How much work is being done on lettuce flavors? Um, not a lot per se on flavor, but uh, some lettuces are definitely sweeter than others. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, consumer education that maybe needs to go on. The the lettuce growers did and shippers did do a survey quite a few years ago now uh, to the consumer general public, and the message they got back was basically, leave it alone. It's a vehicle for my salad dressing, which, uh, you know, is uh, do- doesn't bode well for working hard on taste. And has that been really the, you say that it's a big part of the American diet. Has it always been, or is this something that's a little more recent? In the old days, it was a local, a local thing. Obviously, lettuce didn't travel very well, but uh, I'm sure you've read probably the Grapes of Wrath and Steinbeck. You know, they they worked out how to ship lettuce back from California to the East Coast, and and hence that's why it was called Iceberg because they there were these ice rail cars that would take good uh, high quality lettuce from the fields of California back to the East Coast. So that that uh, when was that the 50s, something like that. Mm-hmm. Was it? No, it must have been earlier than that. I think that. it was the 30s. Oh. It was the Dust Bowl so, days. Yeah, the Dust Bowl, the tail end of the Dust Bowl, right. Yeah, 30s and 40s. So uh, that's really when it when it took off, I think. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I didn't ever know that about the iceberg, and that's that's great. And what are some other facts about lettuce that people may not realize? In the latex of lettuce, there is a soporific compound that uh, some wild lettuce, uh, they're marketed in Europe, uh, for as a basis of sleeping pills. And actually, Victorian England knew about the soporific effects of lettuce. Um, I don't know if it's so widely read over here, but Beatrix Potter, do you, those children's books? Uh, not so much, just the Harry Potter ones. <laughs> no, no, this is Beatrix Potter. That goes way, way back. So oh. the, the, one of the characters, Peter Rabbit, nearly gets caught by the gardener because he goes to sleep because he's eaten so much of the gardener's lettuce. Uh, you know... It has a mild narcotic. It used to be called sleepwort by the Anglo-Saxons. Huh. It's, uh, so actually, if you eat a lot of latex from lettuce, you will get sleepy. It's what? a property of two uh, sesquiterpene lactones in the latex. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's known as the lettuce opium. Another thing that we might so you say, where is it going? Uh, you mentioned this whole issue of urban gardening. So lettuce is something that's pretty easy to grow, and it's a good source of vitamins. So I think it'll be one of the vegetables, uh, if we're where urban gardening takes off, is something that people will will grow. And also NASA and others are potentially interested in space flight. If you're going to fly to Mars, it might not be bad to have some fresh vegetables, and lettuce may be one of them. Yeah, that's one so. of the ones we've been playing with in controlled environment studies where we're using LEDs to essentially pigment or depigment different kinds of lettuce. And we're able go. to uh, get five or six different phenotypes out of one genotype. Uh-huh. Oh, I, can, I can imagine that. Yeah, you can, you can certainly enhance anthocyanin production by certain wavelengths of light. Yeah, it works like a charm, and uh, some of the different lettuce varieties are a lot of fun because you can you can create what looks like a salad that's made up, and we've actually published this. You can create what looks like a salad with seven or eight different leaf shapes and leaf colors that all come from the same set of genes. Mm-hmm. So, right, lots of plasticity to play with. 
So going forward with lettuce, you know, right now we we're trying, I guess the, um, you've mentioned a lot of the traits that we're trying to improve. Um, I know here in Florida, some of the big issues are like bacterial leaf spot and uh, some uh, other insect issues. Right. But what, what about um, the role of biotechnology? Is there any advances that are coming in terms of either uh, commercialized through companies or university efforts to <clears throat> add traits through biotech? Um, yeah, yes and no. Actually, the one thing, uh, talking about traits and going to the future, and I'll get back to that question in a moment. Another thing we really need to work on here is uh, nitrogen use efficiency and water use efficiency. It won't have escaped your notice that we have a problem with uh, a lack of water in California. So we need to make lettuce more efficient. And then there's the issue of uh, nitrate contamination of groundwater. So quite a lot of nitrogen gets put on, and if it, if it gets leached below the root zone, it's not going to get. It's going to go into the groundwater and not into the crop. So uh, we and others are working to get better, more efficient genotypes in terms of water use and nitrogen use. What has happened over the last? Uh, well, since since I arrived in uh, University of California in 1982, I have been developing different molecular marker technologies for lettuce, genetic maps, and uh, you know, with each technology wave we've got better and better understanding of the lettuce genome. And it cul- culminated a few years ago. We got a consortium together, funded by industry, to sequence the lettuce genome, which we've now done. And we've also, over the years, mapped over 50 disease resistance genes. So we have a detailed understanding of the, ge- of the genetic architecture of disease resistance in lettuce. And we provide the markers back to the industry so they can pyramid resistance genes. So, you know, <clears throat> lettuce is grown as large monocultures, quite, quite often several crops a year. So it's susceptible to various diseases, particularly a disease called downy mildew that's highly variable. And, uh, you know, we have molecular markers, and certainly the companies now are using molecular markers to accelerate breeding for disease-resistant lettuce. And that, in turn, will result in uh, less of a reliance on chemical protections, which, you know, is, is healthier for the environment and healthier for the, for the consumer. And when you say that these are extensive monocultures, is it because they're inbreds, or what, what is the genetic nature of lettuce? Uh, it's an inbreeding crop. Uh, there's rel- particularly in the crisp heads, it's a pretty narrow genetic base, uh, but it's just the scale. Uh, I've, I don't know if you've seen pictures of California, but of lettuce fields, I mean, they just go for miles, I mean, as far as the eye can see. And what's fun, actually, on a quiet day, the lettuce is growing so fast, you can actually hear it grow, the creaking of the leaves flipping over each other. It's pretty impressive. I've, I've seen people harvesting lettuce out there right. uh, by hand, and just the backbreaking work that goes into that part of the work. And Is there mechanical harvesting now, too, or is it? No, uh, you, you get these big rigs that, that drive through the field, and so the, the first crew comes through and, and cuts the head, loads it on the on the belt, it then goes up and the leaves get stripped. And depending on quite how the crop's being processed, it'll either get packed in cartons or put in bins. Yeah, that's a lot how it's done uh, in a lot of places. It's well, done pretty right. much everywhere I've seen. Um, but amazing, those uh, those squads of people that just all day backbreaking work, one after another, moving in front of that truck. It's pretty amazing to see. And you really appreciate every head of lettuce after you see that. You do. You do. Um, and what is the and so when you talk about the genome, how big is that genome? 
to be precise, 2.7 gigabases, that's 10 to the 9 base, 2.7 times 10 to the 9 bases. To give you a sense of scale, that's about the same size of the human genome. I joke that uh, actually lettuce has got more genes than, uh, th- than humans. It, it, so it, humans have a few, few less genes than lettuce. So lettuce is more advanced than humans, but it's about the same size of genome. And uh, a lot bigger than uh, a lot of other crop plants, just to put it in scale. Well, not, not really. Uh, a lot of other crop plants have been sequenced. Of course, you start with the small ones. That's but true. But it's about, it's about average. You know, when, if, if you were to take an average, I think when, when the dust has settled, it'll appear that there are a lot of crops in the two to three gigabase range. Yeah, I guess that's true. We kind of started with things like, you know, rice and peaches and strawberry that have all come out in, you know, well under a gigabase. And yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, tomato is about a gigabase. You know, some of the brassicas are seven, eight hundred. Uh, we've actually just sequenced pistachio. That's kind of fun. That turns out to be a pretty small genome. Oh, that's interesting. So, what what ha- what's the future like for lettuce? In which direction is the industry going? And and are these bag mixes kind of here to stay with the artificial environment? Or you know, what what what's next? Good question. I mean, as a breeder, we have to think strategically because the turnaround time is so long between us doing something and something appearing available to the growers and the public. Clearly, uh, as I say, things like water use efficiency. So we we have to increase the um, reliability and the efficiency of lettuce production. You know, with climate change and more and uh, less predictable environments, we need to have a more plastic, you know, something that's going to guarantee yields in less predictable environments, and also make it more efficient for the inputs of nitrogen water. Water, I think, do greatly believe that salamixes are here to stay, and we can certainly work on that. It's uh, you know rather different from trying to have uh, heavy heads uh, that you have with uh, bulk harvesting of lettuce. Um, disease resistance remains. You know, you have to you have to keep going. The pathogen doesn't wait. You can't take your eye off the ball there. Uh, we work on that. Uh, getting back to biotech, so definitely molecular markers are are already part of the scenario. There is uh, the issue of whether we work with GMOs with um, with transgenics. Clearly, there are some GMO options, but there's really no must-have trait. You know, I think GMOs right now for lettuce would be the wrong crop. That we do not need GMOs, uh, but so we're not going to be in the situation where either you eat GMO lettuce or you don't eat lettuce at all. And that's what it's going to take, I think, to get GMOs into lettuce. Now, what's very exciting? I don't know whether you've dealt with, with uh, shared with your audience the whole revolution that's happening with genome editing. Have you dealt with that? Uh, we've talked about CRISPRs here and there. One of our first guests was from UC Davis, was Allison Van Enenem, who spoke okay. of the, the uh, dehorning with the uh, CRISPR-induced mutation. Okay, exactly. So I think you can look towards um, both in medicine and in plant breeding. The whole genome editing CRISPR technology is, is a disruptive technology. It's amazingly powerful. And right now, it is very feasible to do gene knockouts, right, uh, like Alison was talking about. The thing there, though, is that there's very few agriculturally useful traits that will be benefit from a gene knockout. Some, but not very many. So we now really need to turn our research 
efforts back to not just getting a marker linked to the gene, but actually getting the gene that's causing the phenotype. And uh, that's where my lab's putting a lot of effort in right now. So once you've got that, you can then think about editing, doing gene replacements to specific alleles that already exist naturally, but it's much quicker and more precise than molecular marker-aided selection. The interesting question there is going to be, how is that going to be regulated? Will that be regulated as genetically engineered or not? And we may end up with a different view from Europe as of where they focus more on process than the U.S. where they sensibly uh, focus on product. So in other words, we, we could take something that naturally occurs and we can very, very precisely change lattice to a different allele. So that's going to be one thing that we'll be doing that. That, that will be possible within a few years. Then one of the interesting things about the whole impact of genomics uh, and plant breeding is as we learn more and more about different regions of the genome that will be useful, it becomes progressively more difficult to get all of those good regions in a single cultivar, right? Because you, you want to combine too many parts of the genome. Therefore, where I think genome editing will impact on a, on a longer time frame is that if I can take many genes that I know will be good and I can put them all at one position side by side on the chromosome, then the plant breeder is only dealing with a single Mendelian locus. And that will be then free him, uh, he, him or her up to work on more complicated traits. And I think that's where lettuce and many other crops are going to go, is gene stacks of beneficial genes at a single position in the chromosome. It seems to be the trend, and maybe a lot of different, uh, a lot of different systems, a lot of different crop systems are at least poised to take on the similar strategy, it seems. Exactly. I mean, any, any modern plant breeding program should be thinking about how they can assimilate this technology. It's, uh, it, and it will be an excellent regulatory discussion because uh, I think at the end of the day, if you can't tell the difference between the mutation that maybe you would find with a method like tilling, like an EMS mutation right. that you can, and it versus, um, versus the uh, CRISPR gene editing right. installation, if you can't tell them apart, then why would you regulate them differently? Yeah, well, even more so, if, if what you've done is you've taken a natural allele that already exists and you put it in the same position, right, except you've done it very precisely rather than using marker-aided selection that could pull in all sorts, sorts of other things, I, I cannot believe that that should be regulated. I, I agree. I, I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion over the next few years and um, mm -hmm. and how how exactly that precipitates, how that's treated in a regulatory manner really will depend, really will dictate uh, our position as uh, institutions that can produce these products rather than companies and maybe, uh, maybe even the ability for us as a nation to be able to still be at the leading edge of new variety improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also it's going to speed up adaptation. Uh, so uh, we need to keep up with pathogens, but we're also going to need to keep keep up with climate change. And you know, it, it's a good thing we got this technology. Okay, so that's really an interesting history of lettuce and some of the factoids that I certainly never knew before. And so thank you very much, uh, Professor Mitchell Moore from University of California, Davis. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Biotech. You're very welcome. And that really does conclude another uh, session of Talking Biotech. 
And I'm really grateful to the guests today, Dr. William Powell and Dr. Richard Mitchell-Moore. Both of them gave us excellent insight into two very interesting areas of science. And uh, we'll just end there for today. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Remember to uh, always uh, be very grateful for the food you have and uh, where it came from. And uh, I know I'll never think of a head of lettuce the same way again. So thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend and see you next time on Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.